HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Comté Cheese Association. Comté, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at comté-usa.com. That's C-O-M-T-E hyphen U-S-A dot com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cutting the Curd. I'm your host today, Jessica Kesselman. A few weeks ago, I spoke with Sarah Roland of Bayou Sarah Farms about raising water buffalo in Louisiana and the learning process associated with milking and making buffalo milk cheese. In this episode, we're keeping the focus on water buffalo. I am so very excited to speak with my guest today, Alejandro Gomez-Torres of Booth Creamery. I've been a fan of their cheeses and their story for quite some time. Booth Creamery makes 100% grass-fed, free-range, award-winning buffalo milk cheese. They're based in Colombia, and they have a unique story that crosses three continents with familiar themes that I'm looking forward to discussing. Welcome, Alejandro, to Cutting the Curd. Thank you, Jessica. This is very, very enlightening. Thank you for having me here with you. And have you ever been on uh, Cutting the Curd before? I have not. This is my first time. And I personally find that shocking <laughs> because, <laughs> and I'm actually very excited to be the one that gets to talk with you and share your story with our listeners because, you know, it is such a, it's such an innovative and unique story, but it's also very familiar and it kind of just is another example of the global, uh, you know, community we have in cheese. Can you tell us about Booth Creamery and um, and about this this farm? It's a fourth generation farm, correct? Yes, Jessica. Well, thank you. Yes, Booth Creamery started with a fourth generation farm now that was not dedicated to milking water buffalo, but had a big water buffalo herd. So that's that farm is called Waikaramo. Uh, it belongs to the Herrera family. My partners in the business and. Um, They've been doing agriculture for generations now. It's uh, yeah, almost a fourth generation. 
Um, and um, in 2008, 2009, uh, we, started, we started making cheese. But before that, we started milking buffalo. So the story of Booth Creamery starts in 2009, but we started milking buffaloes in 2006, even though we had the buffaloes there. So um, that's, that's, that's one of our farms now. And, and since time has gone by and, and there is more appetite for Booth, uh, we've had to join more people into this this picture, and we have now other suppliers that are raising buffaloes in the same way we're doing water buffaloes in different regions of Colombia. And uh, I can tell you later why this is important now that we have a diversity of origins. We have different climates, different weather patterns, and, and this has been, a, by luck, uh, really interesting for our product that's grass-fed. So it's been a while since we started. It seems like a short time. Uh, but a short time underwater. <laughs> right. And I, I was really uh, interested to read that water buffalo have been, um, you know, that they've been at home in, in Colombia for quite some time and that um, there's, you know, I think, I think it was your website that said there are over 800,000 of them, one of the highest concentrations of water buffalo in the world. Um, what is it about the climate um, and some of these locations of these farms that are so well suited to raising water buffalo? Yes, Colombia has around 800,000 water buffalo head. And it all started when buffaloes were brought to Colombia to haul timber in the Pacific coast. The Colombian Pacific coast is rainy. I think it's the rainiest places on earth. Um, and bringing out timber from those beautiful forests, tropical forests was, was impossible with other animals back in the time. So water buffaloes were imported as draft power animals. And then timber stopped. Those are conservation areas now in Colombia, beautiful places to go visit. It's beautiful forest, pristine. Um, and they moved to the Central Valley of Colombia in the Magdalena Valley, a very tropical, humid, uh, rainy area. Um, that's very similar to, to some of the of the climates in India and and where where in Asia where water buffaloes roam and, and where they were originated. So Colombia became a very nice home and a very nice hotel for water buffalo. And they started being disseminated by different producers uh, from central Colombia to different regions like the Llanos. Those are the eastern plains that are also rainy, but, but flat, open savannas. Um, always used as draft power and maybe as the colonizing animal. And that's why we were not aware of so many buffaloes in Colombia. Mm, you know, rivers here flood and then drain and it's rainy season, then it's dry season. So buffaloes became like the accordion of, of, of animals that could adapt to drier areas, but also to uh, floods. And that's wow. how buffaloes started to populate um, and, and started moving to other regions of the country. It's been it's been years since buffaloes are here. Now they're used for many purposes. Um, draft power still is is very important. Uh, also for dairy, also for meat, and uh, it's a triple purpose animal for us in Colombia. So for Boof Creamery, what was the um, impetus or the inspiration to decide uh, we're going to start cheese making? Where how did that come about? 
Well, my job when I first started working at the farm with the Herreras was to organize the herd. And we didn't know how many animals we had. We didn't know um, where were they. So we started rounding up cat uh, buffaloes and rounding up and counting and doing. And, and once we had the herd organized and did the inventory, that took us like a year. Um, this is all on horses. You know, it's, it's open, open ranges. And um, we said, what do we do with the water buffaloes? And my partner, Luis and Roberto, they said, uh, my God, we should do something value added. We, we shouldn't just, you know, have animals here just to have them. Uh, we use them for draft power, but we need to do something else. So that's when mozzarella pops into our, into our heads. Uh, they had been to Italy a couple of times and enjoyed a lot the fresh mozzarella they tried in Caserta and the southern part of, of Italy. So we wrote on a napkin and said, let's do mozzarella. We have, you know, at that time we had around 1,500 animals. Uh, then, then it grew to like 3,000, 3,500 now. And that became our, 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 our just our appetite. And it, for me, I'm an agricultural engineer born and raised in Colombia. Getting value added became really important. My dad's a farmer. He's a rice farmer. And he was used to getting the prices, not to setting the price. So I said, this is the opportunity to set a price for a product that has a lot of value and that can be exported. So we, we, we just launched without doing many numbers besides the napkin and said, we could be selling mozzarella to the world. It's a deficitary milk. There's not enough in the world. People love mozzarella. We eat fresh cheese. Let's just teach, let's just teach the world about Colombian water buffalo mozzarella. And that's the endeavor we started since 2008. Is there a, uh, a cheese making uh, community in Colombia? Is, is cheese um, part of, like, is it something that you see in the, in the culinary uh, culture of Colombia? Um, or, or were you guys kind of like spearheading where you were? <laughs> <laughs> there is there is there is a big culture uh, cheese culture in colombia we eat a lot of fresh cheese so fresh okay. cheese is melted on the arepa fresh cheese goes with uh with our desserts uh you know with panela with, with bocadillo that's like guava paste we we eat cheese in many many ways but it's always fresh and always um the, the, the main dish would be like something else with cheese you know plantains right. with cheese and those things so the culture of cheese is, is not elaborate. We're not, we're not into fancy cheeses. Even though there's a big industry of some of the aged cheeses, uh, traditional companies of Swiss people who, who started them in Colombia, uh, you know, 100 years ago, it's a small market for those specialty cheeses. But we were the first ones to come out with a fresh cheese that was differentiated to the rest. And, and that's when Booth comes out. Um, and we just focused on having the best of water buffalo milk and the best brightness of it. How do we make it bright? How do we make it shine? That was our our main our main deal, and and we profited from the fresh cheese culture in that it was not too hard to get Colombia to eat fresh mozzarella because mm -hmm. we were used to that. Um, we were not we are not used still to to aged cheeses with smells and and those strong characteristics. We're used to fresh cheeses, so it was easy to introduce the fresh mozzarella in our market. Uh, even though it came from a strange animal that, you know, swims in the mud and, you know, it's kind of strange, but it, it became a delicacy and we, we positioned it as, as, as a specialty product. Um, so, so far it's been working out with the fresh cheese industry. So it's interesting you were talking about 
the, the herd count. And it sounds like this is like a vast property and the, and the, and the water buffalo are, are, are roaming. Um, and so can you, can you tell us a little bit about um, like the day in the life of a water buffalo now that you're milking them? Um, are, is the management of the, is it the entire herd that is being used for milking? Is it just part of it? And then, and how are you managing um, the milking? Um, yes. One of the reasons I ask is Sarah, when I talked to Sarah at um, Bayou Sarah Farms, she has a very small operation, and she talked about how she goes out to milk the buffalo where the buffalo is. She doesn't bring them in. And on and again, reading about Booth, it does sound like watering water buffalo, especially when you're committing to a grass-fed natural product, um, there's some interesting methods and approaches. Yes, we, we, we first started with open, vast lands. So if a pasture could be, you know, 50 hectares. That's like 150 acres, more or less. And then, obviously, that's where buffaloes were just roaming. We, we ended up choosing and selecting our herd. Some of the buffaloes were old. Some of the buffaloes just didn't want to be at the parlor, and they were stressed. So we said, you know what? Let, let her be. She, she, she has to keep her lifestyle. And we didn't force any buffaloes to be there. Some buffalas were easier to adapt to the milking parlor, the younger ones especially. So we, we ended up uh, leaving some of those buffalas in Rome as, as they, they were used to. And they became the stepmoms of many of our little water buffaloes because they could help us, you know, feed the extra milk that the mom couldn't feed them. Uh, even though we milk with the, with the calf on the side, uh, right next to the, to the buffala, we needed a little bit more energy. So... Those buffalas could take care of two or three calves at the same time. Um, and we kept those old ones as, as stepmoms, you know, as the kindergarten mom that takes care of most. Um, and then we started shrinking the herd into the selected volume per buffalo. Each water buffalo can yield to us a gallon, maybe a gallon and a half a day, uh, plus what she gives to the calf. The calf should be getting a quarter gallon, maybe two quarter gallons every day. And that made us just come into smaller pastures. Now our pastures are five to 10 hectares big and buffalas rotate through those daily just to get fresh grass and to preserve the, the pasture um, and get the best energy out of that. Mm, we do have a fixed parlor. We're milking at Waikaramo, 800 buffalos a day right now. We're expanding our, our operation to 500 more buffalos a day in, a, in another location, but very close by. And because of the rains and how the ter terrain works, we have to we have to let's say have a place that's firm and 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 clean for us to milk the water buffalo. It's a it's a mechanical milking parlor just like the ones used for cows, uh, with the with the difference that there's calves right next to the buffalo. So it, it requires them to be close to their mom, and then makes the moms just be at ease when they're being at the parlor. We do it once a day for some of them and twice a day for other buffaloes that are more productive. And that's how we ended up managing our, our milking. But milking, I'm sure Sarah told you, it's, it's, um, it's a psychological work. This is like coaching buffalas. Buffalas need to be convinced of giving you the milk. They're not going to just give it because they're there uh, like a cow. A cow will yield the milk. She's walking to the parlor and the milk is coming out of their udder. Buffalas are hiding the milk. They're really, uh, they cherish their milk and 
it's natural. They're just keeping the milk for the calf. So when they go to the parlor, they need the music, they need the time, the routine, the noise, the water, and they and we give them a little bit of a of a prize. It could be hay, it could be a little bit of other non-GMO foods that we have, just to just to cherish them and, and make them be happy at the parlor. So it's 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 a coaching process to give that we need to give the bufala so they they can give us milk. It's it's challenging, but it's also lovely because uh, they they do just fall in love with bufalas and their personalities and how they operate. Yes, I and that's a theme that keeps coming up when I talk to people, uh, whether it's um, you know it's in Italy or or in the United States, and I'm talking to you is just it's just the reverence that people have for the water buffalo, the respect and the nurturing uh, that the water buffalo um, uh, demand. <laughs> right? yes. I mean, they are like you like you were talking about like the. The water, you know, the buffalo that is stressed, you you let them be, right? Yeah. And it's and it's it's such a psychological relationship, um, and knowing your herd, and it's um, it's just fascinating to me. So um, so where did uh, the cheese makers learn the process of making buffalo milk cheese? <laughs> that was quite a challenge because. I first, when we said, let's make buffalo mozzarella, I said, okay, I need to go to Italy and see what this is all about. So we went to Italy. I spent a week with, with, with the Herreras there. And then I stood for another two weeks just touring around, looking at, at cheese facilities. And I saw, I saw you know, quite a few uh, different facilities in southern Italy. Finally, I came to one of them where I met, I met a great friend of mine. He actually left yesterday. To Italy, he was here last week. Uh, we were we 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 meet every year uh, just to fine tune our recipe. And I met there Michele, and with Michele we we became good friends. I think uh, we just had a good click. And I in that trip to Italy, I said Michele, would you ever come to Colombia and make cheese? And he laughed a little bit. And he he I think he had to look at the map that night, but he committed. And I. Um, I just don't take no for an answer. So I said, Michele, you have to go. This is beautiful. You're going to love Colombia. You're a traveler. You're Italian. You would love it. He said, okay, I'll go. Let me know when the facility is ready and I'll go. So a year later, I called Michele and say, hey, Michele, remember the crazy Colombian at your facility? He's like, oh, <laughs> mamma mia. No, mi piace, ti senti. All that. And I said, um, Michele, I'm ready. When, when can you come over? He said, well, here it's, it's Christmas. I cannot go for Christmas, but I'll be there the 10th of January, 2009. I said, okay, perfect. I sent the tickets and Michele arrives here. It was his first time in South America, but he had been to India. He had been to China. He had been to Romania and other locations making cheese, not buffalo cheese, buffalo mozzarella, but, but other cheeses. He's, he's a, case, a casado. He's a technical casado. Uh, he was born in a cheese vat. His parents were also born in cheese vats. So, <laughs> so Michele came here and, and we started making cheese. And I decided not to have anyone at the facility, we were four people at that time. I, I decided not to have anyone who knew anything about local cheeses because that would bring um, variations or let's say trends that I didn't want to inoculate into my cheese and my milk. So uh, we started with, with, with four people and, and, and started making the cheese and we started dumping milk and cheese because we couldn't make it, we couldn't stretch it. And Michele was frustrated. Uh, it took us a week 
of work and he said, what is going on? I cannot make the cheese. And uh, he, he read and he went home to the hotel frustrated. And um, he said, you know what? I need to see the milk. This milk is so different. I said, sure, let's go. So we hop in the car, drive for six hours, get to Waikaramo. And he understands finally that this is grass fed and ah. that this is out and about with no feed. And then he understands that grass fed milk requires another process. Um, we require a different ferment. There's less fat. There is a different ratio between protein and fat. So we had to do the process differently. Uh, and the next three weeks, he stood here for a month. We started working beautifully uh, and we ended up making really good mozzarella. But it was interesting how he had to understand the milk. And that's the recipe that the four of us who were here started to make. And that's the recipe that we fine tune every year. So there's three cheesemakers, four cheesemakers and myself. Uh, but everyone at the plant knows how to make cheese. We just are always fine-tuning how we do it and the, you know, the sensory analysis, the, the touch, the stretch, the percent stretch. It's all subjective. And uh, we work on that with Michele all the time. Most of us, I learned Italian while working with Michele here. Some of my, some of my colleagues here learned a little bit of, of cheese Italian. Yeah. And, um, we manage some Italian terms that, that are just innate in our curve. So that's how we did. It's interesting that you, you talk about that sensory aspect because one of the things that I noticed immediately the first time I ever had your cheese was that it is distinctly softer than other buffalo mozzarella I've had. I, I used it in a, in a class, in a private cheese uh, tasting class years ago. And it was like, these tiny, these little pillows, it was so distinctly different. And then, and then the flavor as well, it's, you know, when you taste it, that it is a Buffalo milk mozzarella, but it also tastes very uniquely like its own thing. And I, and I wonder like how much of that is the terroir and how much of it was, you know, the ferment that you talk about. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Like what, how do you, what do you think is distinct and unique about your mozzarella di bufala? There's, yeah, I think there's, there's, a, there's this, it's distinct about how the texture goes. Um, it is, it is soft. It is pillowy. It is creamy. Even though the milk has less fat than let's say Italian milk, um, we end up gathering all that milk with the protein that it has, and it, it, it has a nice balance between fat and protein. It should keep the structure, though. It should keep the stretch. It should keep the fiber so that you have a, a bite to it, and it should have the skin. Um, it, but it has, it has a, a, for me, it has a terroir of the tropical grasses. There's, these bufalas are eating things that we never thought they were going to eat. So in the dry season, they're eating leaves from the trees and eating shrubs and other stuff. In the, in the rainy season, they eat the fresh grass. And that's, that's something that I was going to tell you. When we source milk from other farms and we end up mixing the milk, and that's what we do, we end up bringing that mix of milks to be a standard because it could be rainy on one side of the mountain but then on the other side of the Andes, it could be dry. So fat is concentrated more. 
we ended up milk mixing because it makes our milk more homogeneous no matter what time of the year it is. And that's the challenge with grass-fed cheeses, that if it's, if it's the fall or if it's the spring, then your cheese changes completely. Here, since there's no seasons, it's just rainy or dry, we, we make that blend and that terroir from the different regions comes into the, into the, into the milking, into the milk vat and, um, and makes it more or less homogeneous every, every month. There has to be some tropical Colombia and that flavor that, that, uh, that distincts, makes buff, a booth a distinctive product and tastes different. Uh, there's some grass in it. I think there's, I feel grass when I try booth and, and I feel, I feel that difference that you mentioned when I try it and compare it. It should be sweet, it should be fresh, and it should be smooth. So on that note, we're going to take a little break for a word from one of the wonderful sponsors of our podcast, and then we will be right back with more with Alejandro Gomez-Torres. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Conte Cheese Association. Conte Cheese Association represents the Conte PDO, Conte Protected Designation of Origin in the USA. Conte is a raw milk cooked pressed cheese from the Jura Mountains of France. There, every day, 2,500 family farms deliver milk to over 150 local cheesemaking facilities, or fruitiers. This milk must be transformed into Conte within 24 hours of milking to preserve the lactic microflora in the milk, ensuring the cheese's aromatic potential. About 105 gallons of milk are required to craft a single wheel of Conte. Conte takes time to acquire its flavors in the affinage cellars. After eight months of aging by dedicated affineurs on average, each wheel of Conte is graded and shipped to market. No wheel of Conte is the same. Its flavors speak to the pastures where the cows grazed, the season in which it was made, the particular craftsmanship of the cheesemaker, and the time spent in the aging cellar. Therefore, every wheel of Conte is unique. Learn more about Conte, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at Conte-USA.com. That's C-O-M-T-E-USA.com. Thank you again for joining us on this episode of Cutting the Curd. We are talking again about water buffalo, and this time my guest is Alejandro Gomez-Torres of Booth Creamery. This is uh, water buffalo um, uh, mozzarella de buffala in Colombia, but it is widely distributed in the United States now and has been for a few years. I'm lucky to be in the New York uh, you know, metro area where where Booth is a common site for me. And um, I did want to say that I noticed that um, in addition to making mozzarella and you make burrata as well, um, you also make halloumi, ricotta, and yogurt. Um, so yes. are you at the point now where you're diversifying? And, um, and, and I'm also wondering how these products um, differentiate, you know, how they're different from their cow's milk counterparts. Yes, I think we don't want to diversify too much because one of, of the best, I think the best moves we've done is concentrate in where buffalo milk really shines. Uh, we could make any cheese out of water buffalo milk. 
We could make any spread, any any sweet caramel sauce. We could make anything, but but it really makes makes a difference when you make mozzarella. We identified that burrata is also one of those products that if you make it with water buffalo, it, it makes a difference. Even though we use uh, some cow's milk into our cream to make it a little bit more fluid. Uh, so burrata is a mixed milk product from our portfolio. Uh, we're now, as, as of this week, uh, Jessica, we are working on a 100% water buffalo burrata that will be all with our cream. We just need wow. to make that cream stable throughout the 45 days. So shelf life becomes an issue, but um, but it's beautiful. That that cream is just amazing when we when we just try that fresh cream. It tastes like like toasted almonds, a little bit sweet. It's so. That, that might be coming soon. Um, halloumi is, is one of those obsessions of mine. I think uh, we do not distribute it widely because, because of, of, of making volumes of that becomes a little bit hard. But, but we do make halloumi. We sell some halloumi in the U.S., some here in Colombia. It's an obsession of mine. When I, when I went and tried halloumi for the first time in, in, in a food show, I, I, was, I was just overwhelmed by how great it was. And, and we really like cooking cheeses or you know hot cheeses, just great. So that's a product that is more of um, one of those just mental mental things that you have to do. So we made <laughs> we made halloumi, and then yogurt became. We don't sell yogurt in the United States. We we do sell the yogurt here in Colombia. Uh, it became a way of um, of showing more the attributes of of this beautiful milk. So without any additives, without without any other ingredients besides milk, milk and ferments, we get a a very dense creamy yogurt um, that, that, that really, really shines. So ricotta then becomes one of those byproducts that, that, that you have to have when you're making pasta filata cheese and, or making cheese in general. Uh, we do make ricotta. We sell a lot of ricotta. Um, it, is, it is a very delicate product, but, uh, but it's great protein and has, it has some of that fat you know, of our milk. It's sweet and nice. So we, that's our line. We're not looking for, for, for more products in our line. We're just looking to perfection in perfectionate, perfectioning um, our cheeses and our, 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 our yogurts um, and bringing the best of that milk into everyone's plate. That's our, our goal. So you talked, uh, you mentioned shelf life. And that's always a, um, that's always a, a, a an issue when, um, imp- you know, when you're for us in the United States, when we're importing mozzarella di bufala from Italy, um, those of us who are in, uh, sales or logistics know like, okay, if it's being made on this day and then it gets to the airport and then it flies over and then it gets into the warehouse and then it gets picked up and it gets delivered sometimes to another warehouse before it gets to the, uh, retailer. And we're always doing the math. And, um, and we're always thinking about, you know, the product and how to get the freshest product, um, to the store. And, um, I'm curious about the logistics of getting these cheese, these fresh cheeses, um, from, uh, Colombia to the United States. And, um, and what what was that like when you first started out versus um, now that you're kind of up and running with a larger operation? It's funny because, you know, buffaloes are so slow. You know, they walk <laughs> slowly. You go to the parlor, everything's slow. You milk them, it, it's so slow. But once that milk comes out from that udder, 
it's just a rush. So logistics start from the parlor and the buffaloes are, it, 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 the line has the slow beginning and then the slow end. And I'll explain it. Uh, we, we, we milk those buffaloes and then the milk's in the truck. Then it's being trucked to the facility. We make it into mozzarella. And there's a few things we do for shelf life. We do, we do a very clean milk first. Second, we obviously pasteurize our milk. All of them are pasteurized. We use ferments that we import from Italy that are specific for a product, as I mentioned, and they, they are ferments that stop their process once they reach certain uh, pH. So that, that actually lets the cheese kind of like set in, in a picture once it's made. Um, and then we pack our cheese in, in pasteurized water brine just to make sure that we have no other agents here working with our cheese. Um, so part of the process, that process plus the packaging gives us that shelf life. We guarantee 45 days. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to be sincere with you. The cheese changes through those 45 days. But we designed a process and we stretch our cheese with the moisture to make the cheese perfect at day 20 or 25. Because that's on average when our customer is going to eat and share our cheese. If you try it out of the, of the stretcher, you're going to think it's chewy and a little bit rubbery. Yes, there's a lot of fiber because we're stretching it to make it last. And we're just spurging, just releasing all that whey because the whey will keep on acidifying the cheese and, and it'll shorten the shelf life. So the process is a process that's not for a mozzarella that you're going to eat today when it's made. It should, it, it, it'll be ideal at day 20. Um, and that's when logistics come in. And in order to make it on time to Seattle or on time to uh, Chicago for day 20 or 25, well, we need to rush. And that's when we ship off everything on planes. And one huge thing about Colombia is that we are the number one exporter, number one producer, I'm sorry, of cut flowers in the world. So cut flowers are all flown all over the world. We piggyback on those airplanes that are a temperature controlled. And that's how we get into, into the U.S. And, and Chile, for example, we also export to Chile. Um, and then that rush goes into a truck and then trucks will deliver this with the flowers, with the cut flowers into, into where we sell the, the product. And then it all comes to slow. And it's, when it sits on the shelf, it's a little slow. And then when you go and serve it on the table, it's you know around a glass of wine with a candle and with friends, and that's the slow part again. So there's a cycle <laughs> of slow rush, slow, trying to make it onto the table on day 25, knowing that if you eat it on day 45, it should be fine. It should be a little softer. Maybe that Silegini that you tried was was maybe maybe at the end of the shelf life, uh, but it should be it should still be sweet and creamy. It shouldn't be acidic. It should still hold well, even though the texture changes. Um, but we had to work around that because, because we knew that it had to last if we wanted to share it with the world. I do want to also, uh, um, congratulate you on the square container, um, which I believe, I think it was one of the first ones <laughs> that yes, I yes. saw yes. and, um, it definitely made you stand out on a shelf and also it's so easy to stack. And, um, you can, you know, it's such a great, it, it was just such a great idea for packaging and, um, 
and uh, I definitely noticed it. Um, so, uh, <laughs> and now, I, and now we're seeing more and more of the uh, cube yes. Uh, yes. packaging out there. Um, so, uh, and in that respect, like with marketing your cheeses, was that was that something you did with partners in the United States, or was that all done in Colombia? Mm. No, that's 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 me with a little cooler walking <laughs> around. Uh, yeah, literally, that's what we did, and and we we had good connections, definitely, to start. Um, my great partnership in the U.S., who 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 was a co-founder of Booth, uh, he was a door opener for us with different retailers, and um, he had the doors, and I had the story and the passion. So we both went together with our with our cooler. I remember his great. He had a great suitcase, one of those '70s aluminum suitcase, like the ones that flew to the moon. And we would walk into our meetings with that suitcase full of cheese and. And let people try it. So it was it was it was through mouth that we had people try our cheese. It was it was it was sending the cheese to everyone uh, and letting everyone try it. Mm. And um, then basically, what what really helped us was was to be the only one with visibility as a brand. I think Booth you can see from far away, and uh, it makes you want to double click in and understand what's in there and once you start reading there's there's a story behind there's you know made in colombia that's so strange but at the same time it's kind of hip and, and interesting so i think there's a lot of coherence between our branding our story and our products and that helped us a lot and, and with great great customers that we have that we're advocates and we're promoting our cheese and just mentioning how great it was i think I think that's that's what helped us with marketing, but it's been all done, you know, walking around and going to food shows and and getting the feedback from everyone, people from all over the world trying the cheese and saying, "I like it. I think it's too salty. I think it's too hard. I think it's too soft." You always get opinions, but mm-hmm. <laughs> that's how <Yeah>. it goes. <laughs> so, in the in looking into the future, um, you were talking about the growth and um, and creating a larger network of uh, suppliers of buffalo milk, working with more farmers. Are these farmers that are changing over their herd or are they people who had buffalo milk and, you know, water buffalo and maybe weren't raising them for milk? How, what's the vetting process as you start to bring more farmers into your, into your fold? It's, yes, these, in general, it's people who have water buffalo, but they didn't know the potential of, of this animal. So they had it as a as an animal to take care of of uh, of complicated terrains, let's say, terrains that are floodable, terrains that have a lot of weeds and they cannot really go and clean up. So so buffaloes where they are a little bit relegated to the background. Um, so we go to these these we are members of the of the Association of Buffalo Breeders of Colombia. We are pioneers with with you know producing cheese we're well respected in this in this group of people and and you know we we go around and say hey guys look you have a gold mine with your buffaloes let's clean that milk let's make that milk booth milk uh so we what we do is we just install cold tanks see if we have to bring power electricity we 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 find the way to do so um we try to incentivate um you know, milking activities, milking practices, proper milking, 
and um, and we we pick up the milk at everyone's farm. They don't have to haul or anything. We just go pick it up in our in our trucks. So it, it became an easy way to to get an extra revenue from your farm. And people who really in, got into it now have buffaloes are their as their own business. They sold their other cattle herd and expanded buffaloes um, because they can have the three purposes. They can have milk. Then they can have a meat to, for sale when they're older or, or the steer. And then um, draft power is also something available if you want to sell some buffaloes for draft power. So we taught people the potential that buffalo had. And, and that word of mouth within Colombia just became, became a way to call pe- people call us and say, hey, I have 50 herd. What can I do? Well, let's, let's work it out. You might need a little bit more to have economies of scale. Um, but we're, I think we're just motivating all buffalo breeders to, to get into water buffaloes and to do it in the right way. Not, we don't need changes. We, we want them to be free roaming. We want them to be swimming in the pool. We want them to be out there with the, with the birds. Keep it as it is. Don't, don't, we, we don't want to invent anything that's, that's been perfected by nature for centuries. Keep it as it is. Let's just make them milking friendly. And... Um, we have a grass scientist in our company that does it all. Miguel goes around through the farms, checking out the grass. At the end of the run is, is, is grass availability that makes buffaloes happy and therefore the milk good. And that's what it's all about, right? Yes. <laughs> you have to have great milk, which comes from great grass and, uh, you know, and keeping the environment and the, and the land open. Um, and I think that that's actually a beautiful place for us yeah. to end this interview. I like. I have to say that one of the things that always um, interested me about the story of Booth was the logistics, the fact that it came here um, piggybacking on the um, transport of, of fresh cut flowers. And I just think that that is so beautiful. <laughs> it is a good gift. <laughs> it is it is it's a it's a beautiful thing and um and i'm really looking forward to hopefully uh seeing meeting you in person um hopefully as we are back into the events and the gatherings in the cheese community and um i really thank you for being our guest today on cutting the curd thank you jessica it's it's an honor and um and thank you because going through going through the story here as we speak just makes me, I get a little bit of a, of, of, you know, like, like my skin gets bumpy just because of, of remembering the, the path that we've, that we've been through and, and how it all was, you know, 13 years ago when we were just milking 35 water buffalo. Um, and now, you know, having some brand recognition and, and being able to share that deliciousness around the, the U.S. and Chile and Colombia, I think it, it makes me really happy and, and it makes, I see smiles and, and, and I see good comments and I see people share it. And that's what it's all about. It's all about deliciousness. It's all about great food and sharing it around your friends and family. The life, life doesn't go any, any further than that, you know? So we love to be part of that. And thank you for the opportunity uh, to share this story. And I would be happy to meet you anytime. I'll be in the U S very soon. So, and also, please feel free to come to Colombia. And, and uh, if, if anyone wants to visit Colombia, it's, it's very easy, great place. And the water buffalo side of Colombia is amazing. So 
we're open to anyone who would love to visit. Okay, so it sounds like there's a, a lot of travel plans are about to be made. <laughs> so thank you again for joining us. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, don't forget, you can always find our episodes on the Heritage Radio Network website and on your favorite streaming platforms. And check out our Instagram. And again, thank you to our sponsors. And we'll see you next time on Cutting the Curd. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.